Chapter 1, Lemuel Hardison Red and Keziah Jane Butler. Lemuel Hardison Red and the son of John Hardison Red and Elizabeth Hancock was born in Sneeds Ferry, Hounslow County, North Carolina, on July 31, 1836. The family must have had a good home for that day, although it lacked the comforts we now think are indispensable. His parents were slave owners, and he grew up with colored servants available to do his bidding and to help him do his work. At a very early age, Lemuel was given a servant and bodyguard named Luke born 9th of January, 1828, who was the son of Elizabeth Hancock's Red's own maid, a maid which Elizabeth's father, Zebedee Hancock, had given her. Luke was nearly eight years older than Lemuel, and his maid responsible for his young master, with a charge to teach him and guard him from all harm. It has been reported that Luke was very apt at all kinds of handwork, and so Lemuel had a good teacher. Consequently, as Lemuel grew up, he had all that a young gentleman of his day should have had. Even after he was given his freedom, Luke stayed with Lemuel, or near him, for many years. He even went to New Harmony, and set up some kind of barber shop there, and did odd jobs for the townspeople. Luke's mother, Venus, came to New Harmony to see her son one time. My own father and mother could remember Venus's visit to the town. Lemuel was about two years old when his parents left North Carolina to go to Tennessee. The family at the time consisted of the parents, and their children, Anne, Mariah, Anne Elizabeth, Mary Catherine, Lemuel Hardison, and John Holt, a tiny baby. They moved late in 1838 between August and early December. Lemuel grew up with three older sisters and two younger brothers, all of them born in North Carolina except Benjamin Jones, the youngest. He was born in Tennessee. Their home in Tennessee apparently was similar to the regular southern homes, with immense high ceilings and a large upper porch on at least two sides of the house. I saw houses typical of the type when I was in the south, and I can imagine what it was like. I remember hearing Grandpa tell about a time when his pop was away from home and a neighbor's slave came over and slept in their slave quarters. The neighbor missed his slave and came around to find him with the red slaves. Grandpa said, How he begged and pleaded and cried for mercy, but they whipped him. They whipped him with a shovel. If Pap had been home, no one would have dared to come prowling around our slave quarters like that. Grandpa said he got up and went out onto the upper porch in his bare feet and long nightshirt to listen to them. He may have been about eight years old, for this may have been the time his parents went to Nauvoo in 1844. We know little else of his life in Tennessee, but he must have been an active, growing, industrious boy, at least when he wanted to be, because of his later accomplishments. At the age of 14, Lemuel drove an ox team across the plains to Salt Lake City. Oxen were not driven in the same way as horses. No one sat in the wagon and drove oxen with reins. They walked by the head of the lead ox, holding onto a sort of bridle to guide it. The yoke tied the oxen together, so they pulled in unison. The driver always carried a whip in his hand in case of a runaway. If that happened, he jumped on the ox's back and beat it over the head to make it shut its eyes and slow down. We don't know how many wagons were in the Reds' party, but they must have had a sizable caravan. With several wagons and much loose stock to be herded, driven, and rounded up at evening, there was work for all. On the way west, the company had an epidemic of cholera, which took the lives of some of their number. The bodies were put in unmarked graves alongside hundreds of other unmarked graves, which had been left by previous companies. Lemuel told his children of the great herds of buffalo they passed on the way, and of the terror they felt with these animals stampeded. At such times they saw a cloud of dust in the distance, which grew larger and larger. Realizing the danger, the company collected all the wagons into a compact group. The animals were tethered on the opposite side from the oncoming herd, and members of the company knelt low behind the animals. They put their heads close to the ground and covered them with anything they had, coats, hats, clothing. Some of the women even put their skirts up over their heads. 
This was to keep the dust out of their nostrils. The sound of hoofbeats grew louder and louder until it was a roar. Then hundreds of buffalo charged by. The people were almost hidden under a thick layer of dust, but they were safe. Also, the travelers were often terrorized by seeing Indians in the distance. They feared an attack from the Indians and were ever ready and on the alert. When Aunt Luella went to Parowan to live, she met an old-timer there, Richard Benson, who told her that he came over the plains in the same company as the Reds. He said, That boy, Lem Red, was surely a good driver of oxen. I had never driven them before, and I didn't know how, but Lem Red told me a lot about it and even drove my team across some of the fords to show me how it was done. I guess Lem told others how to. I presume he had been around them since he was a tot. Many of the pioneers had never driven oxen before. Lemuel H. Red was baptized June 3, 1852, when he was 16 years old. They let him wait until he himself wanted to be baptized. They didn't seem to make an issue of being baptized at eight years of age. His brothers, John Holt and Benjamin Jones, were baptized at the same time he was. On that same day, he and John Holt were ordained priests. He was baptized by W.W. W. Willis and was confirmed by Stephen Markham, the presiding elder of Spanish Fork. Grandfather was set apart as a war teacher when he was 17 years old. He was to work with an older brother in the ward. One night, his companion was unable to attend his duty and asked Grandfather to visit their district alone. This he attempted to do. The first door he knocked at was opened by the man of the house, and he was asked his business in a rather curt, sharp manner. His answer was that he was called as a war teacher. This seemed to enrage the man, who lost no time telling Lemuel his opinion of one so young and inexperienced assuming such a responsibility. He turned from the door, his heart broken, with a firm determination to go home and never attempt such a task again. But a still small voice seemed to whisper to him, urging him to make one more trial. After some hesitation, he tried another home, tapping timidly at the door, which was opened by an elderly brother. After some hesitation, he tried another home, tapping timidly at the door, which was opened by an elderly brother who greeted him cheerily. Good evening, my son. What can I do for you? I've been called as a war teacher, Lem said. He was kindly grasped by the hand and led into the home. The brother said, God bless you, my brave and courageous boy. I've never been more happy in my life in accepting my war teacher. The brother then extolled his labors and gave him very fine, wise, fatherly counsel, which filled him with love and encouragement for his work. In all his life after, that he never failed to be grateful that he had encouraged to follow the Spirit's promptings to knock at one more door. When Grandfather was 17 and 18 years old, they had an Indian war. It was led by old Chief Walker and was called the Walker War. Grandfather was in the militia against these Indians who were giving them so much trouble. They would swoop down and drive off the cattle and horses. They would destroy the fences, buildings, and crops. And they would kill anyone who was foolish enough to go off alone. It was at that time that the Indians burned off the first sawmill that had been built in Utah south of Provo, and which Lem's father, John H. Red, had helped build and finance. I've been told it was a loss to him of about 6,000. As a member of the militia, grandfather had to take his turn as guard, for they had to have someone on guard duty all of the time. Old Walker died in 1855, and he was followed as chief by his brother, Arapine. The brother was just as bad as Walker at first, but he changed. He said that Walker came to him in a vision, saying that the land didn't belong to the Indians, nor to the white men, but to the Lord. There was peace in the area for about ten years while Arapine was chief. After the Indian War, the settlers built a fort surrounded by high rock or adobe walls, at least if it were anything like the other forts in the territory. Small rooms were built around the walls to accommodate separate families. The roofs of these rooms sloped a bit to the inside, and the outside wall was higher than the roofs. 
Above the roofs and in the wall were small holes called loopholes so the guards on the roofs could look out, locate their assailants, and if necessary, shoot. Nineteen families lived in the Spanish Fork Fort. Nine out of the nineteen were our own relatives and ancestors. They were Bishop William Pace, John L. Butler, Wilson D. Pace, Lemuel H. Red, John H. Red, George W. Seavey, Kenyon Taylor Butler, Harvey A. Pace, and John Holt. Grandfather's name was on the list of city voters May 7, 1855. He was not yet 21, so they didn't seem to stick close to ages in civil affairs either. They apparently took it for granted that he was mature and had a man's intelligence to vote at 19. Girlhood Lemuel H. Red's wife was Keziah Jane Butler, a girl of sterling qualities, amiable and reserved. She proved to be a faithful wife and a loving mother of 13 children. She was the daughter of John Lowe Butler, a blacksmith and willwright, and Caroline Ferrazine Skeen. She was born February 25, 1836, in Simpson County, Kentucky. Her father was opposed to slavery, and so she and her brothers and sisters grew up to wait on themselves and on each other. Her life was a hard one from the beginning. She was the fourth child of 12 children, the second daughter. She was about a month and six days old when her parents, who had joined the church, started from Kentucky to Missouri. Therefore, she knew nothing of life before they were in the church, her parents having been members about a year. We have very few incidents of her childhood. She was baptized March 1, 1844, in Nauvoo. One time, while they were on their way from Missouri to Illinois, her father was in hiding from the mob, and so Brother A.O. Smoot drove the wagon for Caroline and her family. The Smoot family was also in the wagon. John Lowe Butler writes, Sister Smoot was sitting on the front end of the wagon and had Keziah on her lap. And they had a horse and harness, and they would kick once in a while. And they began to kick and struck Sister Smoot on the knee and my daughter on the eyebrow. They both screamed loudly, and my wife went running back to see what was the matter. She found them both bleeding most fearfully. There was a woman came out of her house, for they happened to be passing a house at this time to see what was the matter. She soon saw and ran into her house and got her camphor bottle, some brown paper and a pan of warm water, and brought it to them, and helped them all she could. Lots of saints were camped near, and my wife went and got some elders to go and lay hands on Sister Smoot and on my daughter Keziah. After they got started on this trip, Caroline, the mother, had very sore eyes, attributed to too much dust stirred up on the way. This was a great trial to her as Sister Smoot had to lead her along the way for five or six days. Another day, as they were going along, it was very cold, so that they did not know what to do. The children were all crying with the cold. They went up to a house and asked the woman within if they might come in and warm. She made no answer. They asked her again, and she made no answer. So they said, Let us go in and warm. In they went, and the women went off into another room and never spoke to them at all. But they sat there and warmed themselves, and the children good and started on their journey again. Well, it still kept very cold, and my wife and children suffered very much indeed. No one would go on such a long, cold trip with their little children if they didn't have a very strong testimony of the truth of the gospel, as it was restored in the last days by and through the prophet Joseph Smith. I keep feeling the strength of their testimonies is our right of their trials. When Keziah was about nine years old, the saints were driven across the river into the wilderness. At one place, probably called Running Water, they hastily built some log houses. They would cut down several trees and trim off the branches. Then they would tie a number of them together and drag them to the cabin site. The children liked to climb on those logs that ride. There were many friendly Indians close by. And one day an Indian boy came and rode with them. The chain came unfastened and the logs rolled over. The Indian boy was badly hurt. The Indians warned the settlers that if the papoose died, they would kill one white child. They all worried, worked, and prayed that the boy would live. 
The Butler family was having an especially hard time right then. The father was away, and they had very little. The mother worried over the health of her children. They had no wheat bread nor meat at this time, and a diet of corn alone wasn't good. The mother took very sick with dysentery. She couldn't even get out of bed. Her neighbors were kind and anxious about her. Two of them were in the house bathing her death-like face. The Indian chief came to the door and looked at her. He stepped in and, taking Keziah by the hand, led her out of the house and through the forest to his wigwam. The sick mother, thinking that the Indian boy had died, cried, My little girl is the ransom. My child is the price of that death. They were all stunned, speechless. For half an hour, no word was spoken. Then Keziah came in with a pan of flour, a cup of sugar, and a bit of coffee. These were for her mother. She could have had little every day. A cake or a bit of flour stirred up in water and eaten raw. It cleared up her sickness. The Indian boy did not die. They learned then that there was good in the heart of the Indian. One day, an old squaw came to their door and asked for bread. They had little they could spare. In fact, they couldn't spare any. Caroline and Keziah's mother showed the squaw how little she had and how many children she had to feed, but she shared with the squaw. The next day, the squaw came to the door with a quantity of dried berries and a bit of dried meat, which was welcome. She came often after that, and each time she came, she brought something they needed. A warm friendship sprang up between them, and she was ever their friend. She was a real friend in time of need. The squaw had lost her little girl, and Caroline had lost her mother. The squaw wanted to be a mother to Caroline, and they agreed to this relationship. The grandchildren called the woman Grandma Squaw, and she had lost her own little girl who was about the same age as Keziah, and she was therefore especially drawn to Keziah. When the family told the squaw they were going west a long way across the plains, she looked at all the little bare feet and made a pair of moccasins for each of them. Keziah's were especially lovely. Grandma had beaded them with bright colored beads because she said she loved her as she'd loved her own little girl. On the trip across the plains, Keziah endured all the regular hardships, scant food, and weary walking. She walked the entire distance. In their trek westward, there were 51 wagons in the company. Eliab B. Kelsey was captain. Keziah's father, John Lowe Butler, was blacksmith and captain of the wagons. Keziah loved to portray to her children in later years the little incidents she carried in her memory from that long and tiresome journey. Even though it was tiresome, it was often full of pleasure for the young people and children as they walked in groups, gathering wildflowers and berries, and visiting with each other. Sometimes there was danger in their path, Indians, buffalo, snakes, and wild animals. For this reason, they were instructed to stay close to the wagons. One day, however, their interest in the things they had found took a group of youngsters out of sight of the wagons, and they became lost. Great consternation arose throughout the company. The train was stopped, and a general search was carried on. The lost ones were eventually found and brought safely into camp. Keziah never forgot the terrible fright nor the scolding from the captain, which made them all wiser about remembering instructions. Upon arriving in Utah, the family was called to settle in Spanish Fork. It was a new little settlement, and they were having trouble with the Indians. The Indians drove off their stock and left them rather poor. After he got things in shape in Spanish Fork, Keziah's father decided to go back along the trail to Fort Bridger, but Brigham Young counseled him to go to Green River instead. He went in 1854. He was a professional wheelwright and could fix their wills that needed it and made pretty good money that year. Much of it was in stock. The immigrants to Oregon would arrive with thin, bony animals, and they would trade two or three of those for one fresh animal. John Butler pastured out the thin animals until they were rested and fattened up. Then he would trade them off in the same way. The people in Spanish Fork needed stock badly, as the Indians had run off most of what they had. 
A place down in the valley was called Palmyra. There was another small settlement higher up. It seemed that there were not enough people in either place to make an adequate settlement, and so when Keziah's father came back from Green River, the settlers decided to build a fort between the two places. There were the nineteen families in all, and they all moved into the fort. As time went on and peace was restored with the Indians, the families built outside the fort and began the real place. They had all been close together in the fort and become good friends. I was told that a group of young ladies were talking about the prospects of bows among the young men of Spanish Fork. Grandfather's name was mentioned as one of the desirable ones, and Keziah said, Don't any of you think you have a chance there? I'm going to get him. That's the way it turned out. I think this occurred after Lemuel's mother died. Grandmother said she never met Lem's mother. There was only one thing she remembered about her. She remembered seeing her one day come to the door and throw a pan of water on the ground in front of the house. In many of those old houses, and especially in the forest, they had only one door. All refuse, including water, was thrown out on the ground in the front yard. Maybe some of the worst of the refuse was carried away a bit. In April 1855, Keziah's father went away again, this time to Bridger. He took with him his wife, Sarah, and Charity and Keziah, his two oldest daughters. He didn't do so well that summer, but his daughters did. They washed and ironed and cooked for members of the companies going to the northwest, and they made a lot of money. Keziah earned a wedding dress of dotted Swiss for her coming marriage. When they returned home, practically all their crops had been destroyed by grasshoppers, and they were poor indeed. The grasshoppers were so thick that John L. said he counted 27 on one blade of wheat. They couldn't walk without stepping on dozens of grasshoppers at each step.